the basics of life revolve around biomolecules and proteins and RNAs form two of the major classes of functional biomolecules and how they adopt their shapes and what functions they undergo is critical to understanding how nature and biology work. Hello and welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm Forrest Goulden. And I'm Joanna Rowell. That song you just heard is called The Pony Folds and is almost the topic of today's show, which is on protein folding rather than on pony folding. So we really ought to change the lyrics of the song to the protein folds into alpha helices and the protein folds into beta sheets. Hold on. Two problems with your version of the song. <laughs> First, it's kind of nerdy, which well, yeah. I like. I like. But people may not know what an alpha helix or a beta sheet is. Well, perhaps then, Forrest, you can provide us with a little protein folding 101. Great setup. <laughs> protein, protein structure is divided up into four categories. The first are primary structures. Proteins are made up of molecules called amino acids, and these are strung together into a chain, like beads on a string. That's the primary structure. And secondary structure is when that amino acid chain itself folds up. It can fold, for example, into a spiral shape, like the alpha helix, or it can fold itself flat like a piece of paper, and these are called beta sheets. But wait, there's more. For just $19.99 and three easy payments. These secondary structures can themselves fold up, forming tertiary structures, which look like three-dimensional blobs. So, for example, two alpha helices can in intercalate, or an alpha helix can be sandwiched between two beta sheets. Right, and then there's quaternary structure. That's when two or more separate amino acid chains, which each have folded in all these aforementioned ways, come together to form a protein complex. And we can't forget quinternary protein folding. Wait, what? Is quinternary even a word? <laughs> what, what's quinternary folding? It's bacon. The most deliciously folded protein there is. Bacon is delicious. <laughs> Bacon aside, when you consider that there are about 50,000 different kinds of proteins in the human body, and that on average there are 480 amino acids in each protein, protein folding becomes very, very complex. And when it goes wrong, it's bad. Consider prions, which are the pathogens involved in mad cow disease. Prions are misfolded proteins that, when introduced to normal healthy tissue, cause a chain reaction of protein misfolding. The misfolded proteins gum together to form plaques, which can completely disrupt pro tissue function. Our guest today is Dr. Tobin Sosnick, a biophysicist at the University of Chicago. He studies how long biological polymers, such as proteins and RNA, attain their three-dimensional shape, in other words, how they fold. Sosnick is a physicist by training, having completed his PhD in applied physics at Harvard University, studying the low temperature properties of helium. But, as he points out in this clip, biology and physics aren't so different. Biology is, I mean, biochemistry, biophysics, they're all sort of the same thing. I mean, you eat food, you're, you, you're you have enzymes in your stomach, which um, chop up proteins into little bits and then they're metabolized so you're automatically used to thinking about um, structure, energy, work, um, time scales of reactions, 
And so I sort of view they're not really, I mean, to say biophysics is mm -hmm. to say they're at the, the interface. So yes, I mean, there's the physics angle where you have tools from physics you're applying in biology. But as a discipline, I, I think it's our biases where we say there's biology and then there's physics, and they start out as separable. Say, so now you're at the boundary. I mean, I guess I'm working to think about it as they're really part and parcel of the same thing. One of the goals of the Sosnik lab is to predict the structure and function of proteins from their raw amino acid sequences. This is an immense computational challenge, and one approach is to generate incredibly complex models that take into account every atom of the amino acid chain. Sosnik takes a different approach. His lab aims to generate simple but accurate models that describe the basic principles of protein folding behavior. These algorithms incorporate results from the experimental work done in the lab, effectively combining biological and physical approaches. This allows the Sosnik lab to, as they put it on their website, fold proteins so that you don't have to. So the elements which do involve a lot of computational work are um, the structure prediction, in other words, the simple amino acid sequence to protein structure prediction problem, mm -hmm. the protein folding problem, which has been around for over 50 years. Mm -hmm. um, and this involves, I mean, the simplest form is you've sequenced a gene, the gene is the DNA, the DNA um, identifies what amino acid sequence the protein is and then the challenge for the computational modeler is to predict the structure and then hopefully the function of that protein and that is an intense computational task um, involving thousands of CPU hours so that's one element of the research that builds off of the experimental work going on in the lab and that's much more, less computationally um, uh, intensive. And then those are the cases where we're learning to control folding pathways and so forth in order to understand the basic principles, which then you feed back into the computational studies. So all this talk about protein folding, and this is me reviewing my nerdy side, it makes me think of the video game called Fold It. Right. So Fold It is a multiplayer online game where players collaborate and compete to create accurate protein structure models. The Foldit researchers have found that for specific hard problems, Foldit player solutions can in some case outperform state-of-the-art computational methods. Players even encode their folding strategies as recipes, and they share these recipes with other players who are able to further modify and redistribute them. We asked Dr. Sosnick if he had heard about Foldit and what he thought about using video games as a strategy to study biological and computational problems. Yeah, so that, that was an, an impressive feat as far as being able to help with the structure determination. Mm -hmm. My understanding of what they did was is they, they started off with a fairly good computer-built model, and then, I wouldn't say just tweaked it, but they sort of morphed, moved, pushed around, pushed and pulled um, parts of the protein around till one, one of their answers, and I mean, I'm not sure they even knew which one. It's just one of their answers was good enough to solve what's called the crystallographic phase problem. Mm. So here's a case where humans came in rather late in the game and were able to solve what I call the multiple minima problem. In other words, imagine there's a bunch of pretty good solutions and you don't know which one is right. And in order to move from one solution to another, is something humans do better than computers. So in order to, in this case, they'd have to undo structure and then reduce, rebuild structure. And computers don't like to undo structure that much, where humans can say, ah, if I destroy this, tear apart that, then I can put it back together again in a way which um, that 
which uh, makes a lot of sense. So in that way, the humans were exceedingly valuable as helping at the final stages. Now, the one thing I could ask, and or I guess the one thing we're working on, is can you take that insight, can you learn from what the humans did and make it generally applicable? In other words, here was a very focused example, um, impressive result, but it was one example humans spent a long time. Could one make a, a computer program which would take what they did right and codify it. I guess that's what we're trying to do, is you're trying to see what's right, what's wrong, make it into an algorithm so that we don't need humans. I think that's the better goal, is to figure out what are the basic principles rather than letting humans create thousands of solutions and hoping that one of them has a property which allows the ex experimental crystallographer to solve the structure. The people with the high scores on Foldit might not be so pleased if humans were no longer needed for this. The humans are dead. 11010100011010101. Hey, Joanna? Yes. That was lame. <laughs> yes, here at Grox, we specialize in bad jokes. Yes, um, but speaking of robots, understanding how proteins fold is important for protein engineering, which has implications for both the pharmaceutical industry and basic research. Take, for example, photoswitchable proteins. These are proteins that, when presented with light of a specific wavelength, change conformation. Sosnick and his laboratory are interested in designing new kinds of photoswitchable proteins using light-sensitive machinery naturally found in plants, the so-called love domains. All you need is love. Yes. But in this case, love stands for light, oxygen, and voltage. Oh, way less exciting. <laughs> love domains are found in certain plant proteins, and they allow plants to track the sun throughout the day. The cool thing is that love domains can be attached to various proteins to impart light sensitivity. In a 2008 publication titled, Light Activated DNA Binding in a Designed Allosteric Protein, Sosnick and his team describe a protein they designed that can be induced with light to bind DNA, thereby protecting the DNA from degradation. So really, love brings light into life. <laughs> right. so Dr. Sosnick explains how this works in this next track. We're designing new proteins. Um, in particular, we're taking naturally light-sensitive proteins which undergo conformational changes. These proteins we can get from plants. So plants follow the sun on a daily basis, and what they have are proteins which absorb light and track, um, and track the sun. And what we're interested in is co-opting those proteins which are light-sensitive into um, using them to control other proteins. So we'd have, in the end, a light-controllable system where we can hook it up to a protein which, say, binds DNA or does another function, binds another protein um, with the light-sensitive protein, so that now we have as a light-sensitive protein which binds DNA or some other molecule. So in that sense, we're, we're designing new molecules which nature has never seen before. Is that what the principles we're using are learned from Understanding the basics of protein folding, we're applying them to protein engineering and design to do these other classes of experiments which have much more um, practical applications, at least in the near term. Interest, I mean, you, it's fairly easy to destroy function. Mm -hmm. So what you do is you hook this, the, the light-sensitive protein um, up to the other protein. By hooking up, I mean make it all out of one single chain what we call a single polypeptide. And it turns out that the conformational changes which nature has engineered into what 
these light-sensitive proteins, we'll call them love domains. Love stands for light, oxygen, and voltage. Um, they naturally undergo a conformational change, which we understand. It's the unfolding of what's called the helical element. And we hook it up to, or we engineer its connection to the protein we wish to, um, to look at its function in a way that um, it sort of jams it in one conformation and unjams it in the other. And it's fairly easy to jam something, and then mm -hmm. we just have to release the, uh, the, the jam or the, the inhibit inhibition in order for it to function. So whether we can do it for any protein, I think that's, I mean, that's ambitious. But I think with a, with a reasonable amount of um, time and effort, one can uh, eh, create a protein which at least has some moderate light sensitivity. Um, have we proven that in all cases? No, but I, I think uh, we could if we, if we have enough um, time get it to work. Another example of a photoswitchable protein is channel rhodopsin, which is a light-gated ion channel found in certain green algae species. This protein has been tremendously useful in the field of neuroscience, as light can be used to manipulate the excitability of neurons made to express channel rhodopsin. For example, if channel rhodopsin is expressed in a mouse's motor cortex, when light is shone on the brains of these mice, the motor cortex becomes activated and the mice begins to run. In this example, researchers were able to use light as an optic remote control to turn on mouse locomotion. These proteins um, we're working on, we're co-opting a, a system nature's already um, using. Other people have used light-sensitive proteins, what are called channel rhodopsins, mm -hmm. to open and close um, ion channels in the brain. And um, Carl Dieseroff at Stanford has pioneered this along with uh, Peter Hegeman, who discovered, I believe he was the discoverer of channel rhodopsin. Anyway, the, um, the two of them have been hooking them up into rat brains or mice brains, and they're shining, oddly enough, just simple blue light um, onto these ion channels through fiber optics up to the mice brain to control the behavior of right, or mice. It's either mice or rats. I'm not sure what. Anyway, the point is, is this is really um, having a huge impact on um, neurobiology or psychology. Um, what we're doing, which is different, is we're engineering um, a protein which is involved in, in plant phototrophism to do something we want. So it's a different game. Um, clearly theirs has had more impact and it's sort of tailor-made for their project. Ours is more of a design challenge problem at the moment, though in collaboration with Michael Glotzer's group, um, with a, a postdoc, Devin Strickland, um, they're using it to control um, behavior and yeast, um, division and schmooing and so forth, taking advantage of some of the uh, applications of love domains. Another question is, how do proteins normally fold? Do they just fold spontaneously or do they have help? One thing that could help them are these special protein folding proteins called chaperones. Yes, I actually asked Dr. Sosnick about chaperones, and uh, they, they do play a very important role. I believe, as many others do, I guess essentially everybody, that the primary sequence encodes everything for the final structure. But just because the final structure is the best structure, you still have to get there. And so this brings back up this issue of misfolding, and proteins, as they get bigger, tend to misfold. They fold up into a shape which isn't the native, and they get stuck there. And for some proteins, that could be for days, weeks, out, um, or months, essentially never getting out of their misfolded conformation. So what cha these chaperones do, at least one class of them, is they grab the proteins, 
and they unfold them, they pull them apart, and they allow them to try again. So in that sense, um, they're they're taking they're dealing with a completely real phenomena of protein misfolding. And when I'm trying to do prediction, often my structures are misfolded, and I have to yank them apart. In fact, we have almost a chaperone round where we, at the beginning of each round, we pretty much pull the whole protein apart and let it start over again. And I always view that, that as um, mimicking what the chaperones do. So uh, misfolding is... It's an in silico, it's, I mean, an in computer problem, it's an in vitro, it's a lab problem, but it's also inherently a biological problem. And when we first started, um, when I first started doing protein folding, my first paper got a lot of um, press because we said all these intermediates are misfolded. And in retrospect, it was obvious, and people rapidly forgot the paper because it was just a principle which was just sort of self-evident. But at the same time we were saying that, somebody who was studying chaperones said, ah, that's what chaperones are doing. They're grabbing misfolded proteins and helping them unfold and giving it another try to get to the native state. Well, our supercomputer, Grokatron 5000, had some questions for Dr. Sosnick. Our supercomputer? You mean the computer former is previously known as Deep Blue. That's right. So let's hear how Dr. Sosnick dealt with the Grokatron questions. We know that it's absolutely critical for healthy biological function for proteins to adopt the appropriate conformation. So of these individuals and characters, who do you think has reached their ideal conformation and who might need a little bit of help in the folding department? Dr. Richard Feynman. Ooh, he was decomposing. Um, <laughs> so I guess I got to go. He's unfolded or really unfolded. Um, yeah, so I mean, I guess, he, yeah, I don't think he ever had Alzheimer's, any known diseases, misfolding diseases. No, he was a pretty uh, well-folded guy. Well, he did have his idiosyncrasies. Yeah, activated but well-folded. Activated but well-folded. At Great. least when he was living. Mm-hmm. Um, Sherlock Holmes. Ooh, a hypothetical protein. Yes. Uh, all right, he overthinks things. Um, a well-designed, yeah, well-designed proteins. Um, let me think. But, um, he needed help. He needed Watson's help occasionally. Watson's almost kind of like a chaperone because he would have to Keep unwind him. Holmes from his obsessions. Right. I'm, yeah, I'm trying to make sure I don't start thinking about Downey instead of the original. <laughs> um, in fact, I used um, one of his quotes in a, in a paper I wrote on protein folding, and that was something to the effect of, Whatever's left has to be, once you eliminate everything which is wrong, what's left has to be the truth. Mm -hmm. And I was using that principle in one of my folding algorithms. So I guess I got to give him major points for being, uh, knowing what's right and what's wrong um, and folding. Yeah. And what about, last one, how about Charlie Sheen? Ooh. Um, yeah, aggregated, misfolded. Don't want to be too harsh on the guy. He's, uh, you always wonder whether he knew what he was doing and um, it was just the outside of the protein which looked a little rough. So mm. I bet he could, I bet he was undergoing conformational switching all the time. Mm. Very Possibly active. induced by drug binding. 
Yeah, oh, yes. Well, there you have it, the Grokatron 5000. And there you have the end of our show today. <laughs> if you want to hear more from us, you can find podcasts at our website, grokscience.wordpress.com or groks.net. We're on archive.org and prx.org. There are 10 years worth of episodes on a wide variety of subjects. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. From everyone at Grox, including Charles Lee, Frank Ling, and Elise Kovic, I'm Joanna Rowell. And I'm Forrest Goulden. Keep on grokking.